from the ACLU. This is At Liberty. I'm Molly Kaplan, your host. On July 12th, Texas House Democrats boarded two planes headed for Washington, D.C., in a last-ditch effort to deny Republicans the quorum they would need to pass restrictive voting measures during a special legislative session. The Democratic exodus not only stalls the GOP-led election bills, it also delays Texas Governor Greg Abbott's longer agenda for this special session, including legislation to ban trans youth in sports, further limit access to reproductive health care, and dictate how U.S. race history can be taught in school. The Texas Democrats who fled said they aren't returning until the special session expires on August 6th. But Governor Greg Abbott said he will continue calling special sessions into next year. Joining us to talk about this legislative standoff is Sarah Labowitz, Policy and Advocacy Director at the ACLU of Texas. Sarah, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. Sarah, can you begin by telling us why Governor Greg Abbott called the special session and what led the Democrats to flee the state? So here in Texas, our legislature meets every other year for five months. So it's always a sprint legislative session. And that naturally limits the amount of time that you have to make laws to address problems in the state. So in Texas, we've got lots of issues that require our legislature to act, like the the electrical blackout that caused by a winter storm in February, the pandemic, on and on. The July walkout was actually the second walkout that we've had in Texas this session. So the regular session ended on May 31st, Memorial Day weekend, and Democrats um, broke quorum then as well to conclude the legislative session a few hours early and to deny uh, the Republican-controlled legislature their voter suppression bill. And Governor Abbott was able to call a special session, but he did it... uh, just exclusively on culture war issues. So the special session agenda was just only about voter suppression, abortion, further restrictions on trans kids, how we teach racial history in in Texas. So it was just this entirely culture war driven special session, nothing about anything that's actually helping Texas. And so the Democrats went to Washington uh, on July 12th, as you said, to block not only the voter suppression legislation, but the full range of issues that were at stake in the special session. Has this ever happened before in the special session? Have Democrats ever tried this in a previous year? And and if they did, how did it end? Very rarely um, has it been tried before. So I believe it's three times before this year that we've seen a quorum break happen as a key feature of the legislature. In 2003, a group of senators went to Ardmore, Oklahoma. Um, They were away for 47 days. And just to give you a sense of how challenging this is as a legislative tool, it ended when one senator, John Whitmire from here in Houston, decided to go home in the middle of the night. And that was how the Senate returned to quorum and Democrats lost the leverage that they might have had after 47 days away from their families. What do you think is going to end this one? Like, do you think that this is an effective strategy for Democrats? It just seems like Governor Greg Abbott could continue doing exactly what he said he would do, which is to just keep calling new sessions. And these Democrats can't keep leaving. That doesn't seem like a good long-term strategy. 
I think it's important to understand the current moment in context. And what we have seen this session, you know, we, we were all sitting around our respective Zoom screens in February when Governor Abbott announced his agenda for the legislative session, his priorities. And we were joking internally here at the Texas Affiliate that he just read our website and that that was his agenda. And, you know, here in Texas, we, we usually expect some number of issues that are directly related to the issues that we work on and usually not in a positive way. But we usually don't see quite as many issues. We don't see the governor and his lieutenants defining their agenda so broadly when it comes to civil liberties. We're seeing this kind of wholesale rejection of the the kinds of trends that we see defining life in America right now. And I think that's part of what's going on um, across the board when we see such aggressive attacks on, you know, we, we now have a six-week abortion ban in Texas, which is effectively a total ban on abortion. We have constitutional carry, which allows basically anybody to carry a gun at all times. And, you know, I think that some of that you may listen to this from where you sit and think like, oh, that's just Texas. But it's not really Texas. I live in Houston, which is one of the most diverse, biggest, youngest cities in America. And in Texas, we have, you know, some of the biggest major metros in the country, Houston, Dallas, Austin, San Antonio, where, you know, it's not defined by the kind of Texas, I think, of what people sometimes imagine. So this is a larger attack on on the direction that the country is moving. Right, and in Texas, it wasn't that long ago that Democratic candidate Beto O'Rourke nearly wrested control of a Senate seat from incumbent Ted Cruz. And there was so much talk going into the 2020 election about the blooming of Texas. And even though we didn't see a total blue wave, there was movement in the suburbs. So, you know, why would the GOP choose to double down right now when it seems like they are going against the grain of what's evolving in Texas? So I think it's a mix of confidence and fear. There was a lot of talk in October, sort of this increasing crescendo that Democrats were going to take control of the Texas House. You know, there was a lot of discussion of, you know, who was going to be the Democratic Speaker of the House. And instead, Republicans maintained exactly the same control that they'd had in the previous session. So there's 150 members of the Texas House, 83 Republicans and 67 Democrats. So a 16-member majority for the Republicans. And they held on to that majority in the 2020 elections. In the 2019 session, so again, in Texas, we meet every other year. So in the 2019 session, it was actually one of the more kind of bipartisan, moderate sessions in recent memory because there was a a rising fear among Republicans that Democrats were about to make gains and that if they didn't moderate, that it would loosen their grip on power. And when the 2020 elections happened and there was essentially no change in Republican control of all three branches of government, of the of the House of Representatives, then I think it, it instilled in Republicans a sense of confidence or a sense of doubling down on a very conservative agenda. At the same time, there is a enormous fear of the demographic and cultural changes that are sweeping not just America, but Texas. So we have right now a sort of dangerous combination of confidence and fear. And, you know, to understand the, you know, abortion, guns, attacks on trans kids, the attacks on local government's ability to regulate their own and fund their own police forces or to regulate COVID, all of that is born out of confidence. And the attempt to suppress the vote is born out of fear. Mm. 
Well, let's talk a little bit about the the voter restrictions. Can you lay out for us what they address and how they compare with some of the other voter bills that we've seen in other states, like Georgia's, for example, received a lot of attention and passed? So when we think about the 2021 legislature in Texas, we're starting from a very kind of high baseline of voter suppression. So Texas already has restrictive voter ID. You can use your gun license, but not your student ID to vote in Texas. Texas already does not allow online voter registration. It already restricts who can vote by mail and how you access vote by mail. It already makes it very difficult to register. So if you wanted to do a voter registration drive in Dallas, which sits at the intersection of five counties, you as a deputy voter registrar would have to be registered in each of those five counties to sit in a supermarket um, and you know, be able to register whoever showed up in the parking lot. So when we talk about voter suppression, it's raising administrative barriers to make it more difficult so that people get discouraged and don't participate in the process, and intimidating people from participating by criminalizing participation in elections and allowing partisan poll watchers to physically intimidate people at the polls. And the bills that have been considered in Texas over the last few months kind of hit all of those marks. So on the one hand, we're adding 16 different criminal penalties to the election code. We're empowering partisan poll watchers to have almost unlimited free reign in the polling place. And we're making it more difficult for people to learn about things like vote by mail. So it restricts um, election officials from even distributing information about vote by mail and increases criminal penalties for election officials and poll workers for routine aspects of administering elections. So it's really kind of a greatest hits of, of voter suppression. You know, some of the GOP has said that this is actually an effort to keep some alignment across different counties, that there are so many different rules depending on where you are, and this is one way to sort of have uniformity. How would you respond to that argument? Well, I, I look forward to their support of the various federal uh, bills that would impose uniformity across the entire country, because there are certainly areas in Texas, for example, with online voter registration or the absence of same-day registration that we would love to see to bring ourselves more in line with, with other states. You know, speaking of federal legislation, the Texas Democrats who left Texas for D.C. haven't just been sightseeing the whole time they've been there. You know, some met with Senate Democrat Joe Manchin to discuss the federal voting legislation. What's their endgame there? I think what they're doing to, you know, use the experience in Texas where we where we face some of the most extreme voter suppression in the country to use that experience as part of this critical national debate about the need to restore really federal voting rights legislation. It's amazing. Their advocacy seems to be working on some level, you know, sort of beginning to change hearts and minds uh, on Capitol Hill about the need for this federal solution. I think the federal solutions are entirely necessary and we are kind of hungry for them in a state like Texas. But I think we can't ignore what is happening in state legislatures and the corrosive effects on our democracy that these kinds of laws, even if they ultimately are superseded by federal legislation. One of the things that the Texas law does that's so corrosive is that it criminalizes 
things like serving as a poll worker. So we depend on basically retired people who are serving their communities, doing their civic duty to work elections for not very much money. And I think that people will start to ask themselves, do I really want to be part of this? You know, I don't want to get caught up in criminal penalties for helping someone vote. How can you get criminalized during while volunteering and helping people vote? What does that look like? Oh, yes. Well, when we talk about expansion of criminal penalties in the election code, it's not just for voters. It's for people serving as poll workers. The attorney general brought an action against the chief election, the Democratic election judge here in, here in Harris County for ejecting a poll watcher, excuse me, from the signature verification board. And so, you know, you're someone who's like trying to count votes. And like, if you eject someone who is being disruptive, then you could get sued. You could be criminally prosecuted. If you are an election official, again, you know, nonpartisan civil servants who, you know, do these jobs out of a sense of participation in the community and, our, and in our democracy, if you send proactive information, you could be criminally prosecuted. If you send vote-by-mail applications to people who haven't specifically requested them, you could face criminal prosecution under this law. I was just going to say, you mentioned Harris County. It seemed like Harris County in the last election in 2020 actually did a really great job of proactively trying to get people to vote and that there were really positive results in voter turnout as a result of that. Is this in some ways a way to punish Harris County? So I live in Harris County. Um, it's a jurisdiction of about 4 million people um, in and around the Houston area. And, you know, when we think about, you know, it's bigger than 26 states, I think. Connecticut has about 4 million residents. Um, so it's a you know, I moved to Harris County in 2017 because it seemed like the most politically ascendant, dynamic place in the country. And that is in many ways true. And so as much as we think of a political dynamic in America as being about, you know, red states versus blue states, a critical dynamic to understanding Texas is to understand the ascendance of democratically controlled cities in places like Austin and Houston and San Antonio and increasingly Dallas and in a Republican-controlled state. So Republicans control and have for more than two decades every branch of government in Texas. But so Harris County is the biggest and as of 2016, has started to elect a different kind of person. You know, Houston is the seat of George H.W. Bush. It is, you know, a sort of longtime conservative stronghold. And then recently, thanks to groups like the Texas Organizing Project and others who have done deep issue-based organizing, the story has changed. And our current county judge is a 30-year-old woman who's an immigrant from Colombia named Lena Hidalgo, who has pushed for progressive policy reforms that, you know, you just don't think of when you think of Texas. And so, so much of the dynamic in the state is, it's not just about red versus blue, it's about urban versus rural. And that's as much a part of the political story as anything else. I mean, an argument I heard a lot is that why should the cities have certain rights or certain privileges like early voting or expanded voting hours in general that the rural areas don't? And to me, I read that as code for we don't want as many people in Harris County to be voting. Is that is that how you read it, too? Or is there more to it? Well, I don't think you have to interpret because, you know, we've we've seen there was a bill that was introduced in the House just last week, I think, 
by Representative Toth. It's an election audit bill for uh, the 2020 election, and it only focuses on the 10 largest counties in Texas. And when asked whether it was important to I, to understand the security implications of the election in other counties, he said, what's the point? Because all the small counties are red. And similarly, our Attorney General, Ken Paxton, said in June that Donald Trump would have lost Texas if his office had not blocked counties from sending mail ballots. Um, and those were, of course, the counties like Harris County. So I, I think that the, so at least some of the Republican leadership in Texas has been extremely transparent that their interest in suppressing the vote is really about suppressing certain kinds of votes that tend to be more democratic, yes, but also tend to be more urban and more voters of color. I also wanted to ask, you had mentioned measures that criminalize voting or working at the polls. This is in the backdrop of other measures that have already been in effect for years to criminalize voters. And there was a case recently where a man who was on parole went to vote and he was subsequently arrested. Can you say more about that? Because I think it's important to understand what you've alluded to, which is the larger context and the fact that it's already hard to vote in Texas. Yeah. So when I say that, you know, we're seeing expanded criminal penalties in the election code, that is not racially neutral. We have an election integrity unit here in Texas in the attorney general's office. And we did an analysis that showed that 72% of their prosecutions were against people of color. So, you know, it is not, as I say, racially neutral, who is being prosecuted for violations of the election code. And the case that you mentioned is a man named Mr. Hervis Rogers. He lives here in Houston, and we actually uh, represent him at the ACLU of Texas. And so uh, he was arrested and booked into Montgomery County Jail, which is just north of Harris County. So a the attorney general used a provision of the of the code to work with a an adjoining jurisdiction rather than working with Harris County, where Mr. Rogers lives, um, to prosecute him. And I was there on the Saturday where he the our partners at the the bail fund were able to post a hundred thousand dollar bail for him. And I was able to be there when he had gotten out of jail. And it's just it is baffling why you would... Why was he in jail? Because Ken Paxton is prosecuting him for allegedly voting while while on parole, two instances. He was allowed to register to vote and was featured prominently in the news as a person who stood in line for more than six hours on Super Tuesday in 2020, so just before the pandemic. And he received a lot of media coverage for doing his civic duty, and to prosecute him and to put him in jail on a $100,000 bond, you know, here's a man who's just trying to live his life. And, you know, our, it's worth noting that our attorney general, Ken Paxton, is himself out on a $35,000 bond for securities fraud. He remains indicted. And it's just unconscionable, the the way that he is being prosecuted as opposed to you know, many of the other kinds of prosecutions for violations of the election code that we see around the country, it's just extreme criminal penalties here in Texas. And this isn't the first time this has happened. I mean, I met Crystal Mason years, a couple of years ago, and I remember talking to her and she said, you know, when, when I 
um, was getting some of the information about reentry. This was not discussed. I thought I was doing what my grandmother had done, what my mother had done, you know, what, what was just a tradition in my family, upholding my civic duty. And not long after she was arrested for it, but she hadn't had that information coming out. She didn't know that she couldn't vote. That's right. And, um, you know, there's not an affirmative obligation in the code to inform people of limitations on their right to vote as they are, you know, if they've been incarcerated. So it's just, it's, it feels like a trap. And I will say, you know, Crystal Mason is also our client at the ACLU of Texas. And it was just really moving. She came down from Dallas. Um, we were at church at the Community of Praise in Acres Homes in Houston just two weekends ago. And Crystal Mason came down. Mr. Rogers was um, attending church. And it was just a really kind of amazing moment of people who did not ask to become advocates for voting rights, um, but who have been thrust into this position. So what's the next step with the the current voter legislation? What 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 should we keep our eyes out on? I think everyone expects that some version of a voter suppression bill will pass. The question is when. We have this backdrop of the budget and redistricting that is creates a somewhat complicated political calculus. And so it, you know, it's an interesting time to do civil rights work in in Texas. I do want to turn to abortion for a moment. During the regular session, a very restrictive bill was passed and is now law. On top of that, Governor Abbott added another restriction to the special session. Can you say something about the the bill that became law and what Governor Abbott wants to be considered in addition to that? So the the bill that passed during the regular session was known as Senate Bill 8, so SB 8, and it's effectively a six-week ban. It bans abortion after six weeks of gestation before many people know that they are pregnant. And it creates in the law essentially a $10,000 bounty for anyone in the world to pursue what's called a private right of action against anyone who assists someone in getting an abortion. So that could be someone who drove you to the clinic. It could be the clinic itself. It could be um, your grandmother who helped you pay for it. Um, It could be an abortion fund who helped you arrange transportation. So it is a hijacking of the legal system to pursue extreme an extreme cultural agenda that empowers private actors to act as essentially bounty hunters targeting people who seek abortion in Texas. What I understand is different about this law is that it breaks with the playbook because the playbook, people who are pro-reproductive health care and access sort of had their routine. You know, these bills would pass and they, you know, would restrict access or do things like um, admitting privileges. And, you know, places like the ACLU had their playbook, like we would sue, we would sue. What is different about this this law? It's the bounty provision. It's the private right of action that opens up the legal system to anyone in the world to collect $10,000 by pursuing privately somebody, you know, it's the state outsourcing enforcement to private actors or incentivizing enforcement by private actors. It is a true corruption of the legal system in pursuit of aims to take away people's right to health care. I think you're right that this is an evolution in the, the fight to, you know, restrict people's bodies and people's access to health care. Um, and I think it reflects a kind of trend that Texas is often a place where the fight around civil liberties issues is, is heightened or, you know, ratcheted up. And it's why it's such an interesting and important place to have a presence, um, an ACLU presence, you know, many strong partner organizations here. 
you know, the law could have huge economic effects, huge psychological consequences for people who won't be able to access the healthcare that they need. I'm wondering if there is any consideration from the GOP of offsetting any socioeconomic support protections in the form of um, sexual assault clinics or subsidies for foster children or sex education for students. Is there anything that's being considered to, you know, uh, in response to the fact that many people will not be able to access healthcare they need with this law? No, and I think it reflects a kind of larger failure to actually govern and to do things that would help people. I mean, I sat through a truly painful Senate hearing just a few weeks ago about, you know, further attacks on trans kids. I think we had 33 anti-trans bills introduced this session. They've again taken it up in the special, se in the special session. And, you know, this kind of faux concern for girls in sports. And, you know, what has the Texas legislature done uh, for children, for girls to protect their emotional, physical, mental well-being? You know, there is very little that you can point to in terms of affirmative funding for access to sports and school and mental health and, you know, physical health and all of that. But now there's this uh, kind of, as I say, faux concern for girls in sports. And we see that across the board. Well, speaking of the attacks on trans rights, you know, you mentioned 33 bills in the regular session and then an anti-trans sports bill was on the agenda for the special session. Can you talk about what these bills cover and the impact they would have? So we had 33 bills introduced this session and none of them passed. And that was thanks to just remarkable, courageous advocacy from the LGBTQIA community, from trans kids, from trans parents. And, you know, it's just amazing to see. At the same time, I don't want to undersell the effects of that kind of debate, prolonged debate about whether trans kids have a right to just show up and participate in life, kind of. And that is, you know, enormously taxing for um, trans kids and their families, this question of, you know, do I belong in this state? And, you know, to have your very existence being debated by the highest levels of state government is just, it's, a testament to that community's resilience and that they are still fighting so hard against these bills that have now come back again in the special session. And to your point about the effect that can happen even when the bills don't pass, you know, I know a parent who was telling me that she's considered taking all of her children out of Texas um, out of fear because not being able to access that um, medication is irreversible. I mean, you cannot reverse puberty. It is, you know, and, and oftentimes the medications are ways to stall and to give people more time to make decisions about their lives and not being able to access those medications. That's irreversible. You cannot get that back. And so that that's a huge consequence of these bills. Oh, yeah. Well, and I mean, we, we heard so much testimony about the, you know, the increased rate of suicide and suicidal thoughts among trans kids. And so to have just months of hearings where you see state leadership debating your very existence is, you know, I think it's hard to calculate what the costs of that are. But I know that it's taken a big toll on the advocacy community in Texas, despite compelling expert testimony, despite significant voice from the community that lawmakers just pass the bills anyway. And I don't want to understate how, you know, we're talking about a substantive anti-democratic sort of repressive for civil liberties agenda. 
But the way that they're passing laws is equally undemocratic. Another item on the culture wars is critical race theory and the teaching of race history in K through 12. Um, this is another area where there has been the effect of the debate in addition to these laws has a huge effect. I mean, I, I think there's a lot of fear in the First Amendment space that, you know, teachers are going to be too afraid to teach what I think many people call accurate history. Can you say something about what is being considered in Texas on the critical race theory front? They did pass a bill in the regular session on sort of divisive, a divisive concepts bill or whitewashing history, whatever we're calling it. And there were a series of amendments that were added onto the bill that also mandated teaching about the racist history of the KKK and uh, Martin Luther King's legacy. And it's sort of a grab bag of different things that uh, if you if you're going to. Uh, ban teaching critical race theory, then you've also then it also dictated that you had to teach about all these other things. And so that bill was deemed not extreme enough. Um, it was also passed, by the way, what I was saying earlier about the um, just subversion of the democratic process, there were, that bill shouldn't, you know, there was a violation of the rules that allowed that bill to get to a final vote at all. So it ended up back on the, um, on the special session agenda. And it's a more extreme version of the bill. I think as in the rest of the country, it really is a sort of censorship of teachers bill. You know, Texas, by virtue of its size, as you've referenced, um, sets a tone and an example for the rest of the country. And I'm curious if, you know, in, in taking sort of a macro perspective, if you can speak to the impact of a Texas legislature that is able to pass some of the most conservative legislation in the country, you know, what what message is Texas sending to other conservative legislatures? How does this affect um, politics nationwide? So I take a slightly more optimistic view you know, the, certainly the conservative legislative agenda sends a message, but the fight about that agenda and the fight that, that Texans are putting up about that agenda is also sending a message. And it is significant, I think, that the entire country is paying attention to a, a group of Democratic um, House members from Texas and, and their fight for not just voting rights, but a whole host of other civil liberties issues. And I think it reflects a dynamic that is super important to understand in what I anticipate to be a very difficult decade in the American political ecosystem, that it is not, we are not going down without a fight. And that is part of the message that I think Texas is sending to the rest of the country and that Texas is not you know, it really isn't the sort of mythic cowboy conservative. That is not exclusively the story of Texas. Texas is a big, diverse, dynamic place with big major metros that are politically dynamic. Lena Hidalgo, who, as I said, is 30 years old. She was born in Colombia. She is a political dynamo. She is a huge threat to the kind of conservative agenda that we've seen at current Republican leadership pursue. Similarly, Chris Hollins, he's in his early to mid-30s. Um, he's a lawyer. He's Black. He's He was the one behind the election innovations um, in Harris County in 2020. The current election administrator, Isabel Longoria, she's a young Latina, you know, comes out of the civil liberties advocacy community. So that is as much a part of the story of Texas as the conservative you know, the conservative legislative agenda. And I think that the contest is really worth paying attention to and understanding. There seem to be many battlefronts, and I'm wondering how, at the affiliate, you're prioritizing them. So this is my first legislative session in 
this role. And by all accounts, it's the most conservative legislative session in recent memory. And it really made me appreciate the role of organizations like the ACLU and the ACLU specifically. We have close partners who work on criminal legal reform or abortion access or trans rights. We have very few partners who work on all of those issues at once. And I think as we're as we're, we've talked about, this is not so much about a a policy prescription or a policy preference on the way people access abortion care. And so to have an organization like the ACLU that covers that we work on all of these different issues, it allows us to kind of see the trends and to and to really do integrated advocacy across the different tools that we have as an organization and also across issue areas. So when there is a 20-hour hearing um, that covers both bail reform and voter suppression, we are able to sort of stitch together the political calculus and the political framework to understand how do we navigate a hearing like this. I would also say that it emphasizes for me how important it is that the ACLU is not exclusively a legal organization. And I think people often think of the ACLU as sort of the lawyers for the movement or call the ACLU, we'll see you in court, kind of. And that is true. But the best way to defend civil liberties in a lot of cases is to prevent those laws from coming into effect in the first place. I think in particular, too, in a post-Trump world, in a, in a world where Trump isn't every day giving you know, the ACLU, you know, point by point things that we have to respond to, you know, it feels like this is really emblematic, what we're seeing in Texas, that the fight is really taking place at the state level right now. I think that's right. There are a lot of incentives for politicians to emulate him or to tap into his base to hold on to power. So that is happening at the state level. I think it's really important to understand the dynamics of a state like Texas and to not just sort of say, because, you know, uh, through one set of ears, you could listen to the conversation that we've just had and said, oh, well, Texas banned abortion. Texas allowed everyone to carry a gun. Texas, like, you know, is not letting anyone wear masks, like, and say that that's kind of the expected, you know, of course, that's Texas. And I think that it's so critical to understand the dynamism within a state like Texas, the kind of urban um, you know, the major metros versus the state, that dynamic, because that is part of the political story that we're going to see for the next however long. And in some ways, it's an old political story, but I think it's an especially relevant story for the political environment that we face now. Well, Sarah, thank you so much for your work and thank you for talking to us today. Thanks so much for all that you do. Thanks so much for listening. If you want to learn more about what the ACLU of Texas is up to, go to aclutx.org. And as always, please be sure to subscribe to At Liberty wherever you get your podcasts and rate and review the show. We always appreciate the feedback. Until next week, stay strong.